Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. Okay, welcome to this episode of the 1202 Human Factors Podcast. I'm going to be um, deviating slightly from what I've done. We are still doing an interview, but for the first time, I'm not actually going to be interviewing somebody who is an ergonomist or human factors practitioner, but it is somebody who will be having a massive influence over the um, ergonomic and human factors world over the next five years. In his tenure as as the chief executive of the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors, and that is Dr. Norsman Rashid. Norsman, welcome, and thank you very much for agreeing to be um, grilled by us today. Uh, Thanks very much, Barry. I'm looking forward to it. Um, They all say that until afterwards. Um, (laughs) So what I'd like to do is firstly get to know um, a bit more about yourself and then look at what your ambitions are for the the Institute itself. So, but I know that you're spending a lot of time trying to um, engage with members at the moment and and see what they're doing. So it's very easy to see that, that, that title of a chief executive and think, you know, it's a very big role up there in, in the grand scheme of things because you're essentially running all of the, that logistical stuff and, and bit in the background. But what is it that the chief executive actually does on a, so on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I, I think it's really important, Barry, to distinguish what the purpose of a chief executive's role is um, as well as what they do on a day-to-day because then we work out why we get value from them. And the purpose of the role of a chief executive, and in particular for the Institute, it's to help reinforce the vision for the Institute, what our mission is, and how we're going to achieve that. I also become the champion of our discipline and our profession on behalf of our members Mm -hmm. so that we can make a bigger impact on society. What that means on a day-to-day basis is actually engaging with every level and type of category of membership that we've got from the chartered member to the students, which I enjoy thoroughly. It means talking with stakeholders and allied professional bodies to support what we're doing. And most importantly, for the next five years, it means influencing policies and developments that might impact our discipline and our profession uh, and how we evolve. And a good example of that is the patient safety syllabus that has been established by the NHS to be rolled out across the NHS. Mm -hmm. And so we have placed ourselves in a central position both to advise them on what that curriculum should be for the 600 patient safety specialists that they're about to appoint and for frontline staff. And influencing policy in the healthcare industry uh, is a really good example of what a chief executive should be doing on behalf of this institute. Brilliant. And that certainly gives us a really good teaser into the sort of things that, um, that we can expect to be coming up. But obviously that's around the, um, the role itself. But I think, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to get to know a bit more about the, uh, the man behind the chief executive title. So this is clearly not your, your first rodeo in terms of this high-level role. Um, if anybody Googles your, um, uh, your, your LinkedIn or, or your history, you've clearly got a, a broad spread of, of experience. But where did it all begin? Because uh, if you don't mind me saying, you're not exactly um, in, the, in the older generation for this sort of job either. So you've clearly <coughs> accelerated yeah. forward. So where yeah. did it all begin for you? Well, um, 
I always like to tell people I was born in Yorkshire, mm -hmm. because what that basically means is, not that I'm tight-fisted. I wasn't going to say that, <laughs> but I will. <laughs> it basically means uh, that what you see is what you get. Right. And I think when you meet enough people and talk to them about my engagement with them, that ability to listen deeply and reflect what they want, uh, there's a real passion for making things happen for organisations, particularly where there's a public service and a public uh, good. Uh, so for me, I studied uh, three-dimensional design and technology, okay. and I do think they mentioned ergonomics once upon a time in those early 1980s wow. uh, courses that I, <laughs> I was in. I was destined to be a product designer, right. but yeah. um, after university, I had a big family to support uh, in a single parent family, mm -hmm. and so I went straight out to work. I worked in a few small design consultancies. and. Before I knew it, I had 10 years in local government, you know, right, working okay. for the public service, which yeah. in a way reflects my own ethics about doing good for the public. And at the ripe old age of 27, I found myself as head of the chief executive's office in one of the biggest local authorities uh, in England. I went on to do a similar job. Uh, and over 10 years, um, I focused on business transformation, quality improvement, citizen ship engagement uh, and corporate policy right and that's where i started my career but as a person i think i have a lot of values around social inclusion mm -hmm. uh, and that's good because when we talk about design principles and engagement and meeting user needs you know what you get from me is asking the questions well how does that meet the need of the person perhaps in a wheelchair yes. or someone from a different uh, ethnic background that may not be able to read or appreciate the colour or the signage of whatever. Yeah. And so I think I bring my own personality uh, into that. And so that's the person. But as an individual, I have given a lot to society. Uh, I'm really proud of that. And it comes in at the top three of my achievements. And one is you know, establishing a multi-academy trust. And uh, in 2007, it was one of the first in the country. Right. I had to work pretty closely to Lord Adonis, who was the school's commissioner then, and then after the change of government with uh, Michael Gove. And within a three-year period, I'd established 30 city academies in areas of need across the country. Wow. It ranged from a 99% Muslim school in Oldham, uh, to an all-white working-class school in Cumbria and one in North East Lincolnshire. Right. So it again reflected my personal values about helping people that are more disadvantaged perhaps than others who need a better start in life to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, and so you begin to work out the champion in me to do good. Yes. So with that then, and I guess it is a slight diversion for which I make no apologies, is with that sort of role of setting up the academy side of thing, there's a strong balance there of business and, and, and doing good, and both have to succeed. How, which obviously is then translated through a bunch of the other charitable stuff that you've done. How do you get that balance right? Because you clearly have. Yeah. So what do you think is that, uh, yeah. that golden nugget? Barry, a lot of people get it wrong when they say this is a public service like a university and it must run like a business, mm. you know, or you get a chair of a charity that says I want to run it like a business. And the two philosophies are quite different, charitable and business. 
the business aimed there to make profit for the individuals or a collective of other people. The charity there mainly with a social purpose to do good for society and make a difference to their lives. Any surplus income that's made is reinvested back in its social purpose or its community. And therefore I talk about running social purpose or public entities uh, with the discipline of business, if you right. like. Yeah. You yes. know? So we're not disciplined to make money for the sake of making money. We're disciplined to save, yeah. to get value for money, to reinvest. And I've always been very clear about that. I do worry about universities who tend to be so commercial uh, these days that they're forgetting the student need mm. and what their purpose in life is. Yeah. In a way, subsequent, uh, sub lots of different governments have come in of all colours trying to make them more conscious of money and universities have hired people that are more of the business-like person and forgetting the student yeah. as the customer. Yes, no, I think, I think that's... Um uh, really apparent because it's the yes, it's, it's it making sure that you understand why you are therefore in the first place, which is probably the bit that gets obscured. Um, so then, uh, the, you, you've also then got gone and done um, a, a number of charitable um, organisations, and um, and all of them, as far as I can tell, been very very successful. But which has been your, which has been the one that's given you most, I guess, satisfaction? Um, that 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 glow of um, success. I think there was a. It's not one of the larger charities that I've uh, chaired or been involved in. Uh, it was, in fact, one of the smaller charities called Futureversity that's based in uh, the east end of London in the right. Brick Lane area where um, we were recruiting young people to teach them the uh, competences, if you like, and skill set to do well in life, generally. And, you know, a reflection of my own creativity uh, when the trainers were talking about competencies, I said, I don't think these young people are interested in competencies. So we talked to the young people and they decided they were superpowers. You know, I thought, right, how okay. lovely. You know, <laughs> and they, throughout their six months training, they were all talking about the different human superpowers that they had to evolve to do well in life. And the reason it's my favourite is because I could see the backgrounds of some of those kids who, when they came onto some of the learning programmes, I've never seen young people eat so much and really it almost now brings tears to my eyes because it basically meant they were hungry. Yeah, yeah. As a result of that, I got involved in charities that raise funds to provide free school meals. Uh, for our training course, we never had the budget to feed them breakfast, lunch and something to take home. But guess what? We went out and we got donations from local shops in the East End and we created lunches and meals for them to take home. Yeah. We didn't make a big issue about it because we didn't want the kids to feel bad about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we just made it available. So I'm proud because I was emotionally moved by something I had not really realised was going right. on. That's fascinating. That's, um, yeah, I mean, we could go down a whole different political discussion here, but this is probably not the forum. Um, we'll do another one on that. If you are a Human Factors practitioner or in a related discipline and are not already a member, then do look up the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors. They are the professional institution for all Human Factors practitioners. Find them at www.ergonomics.org.uk. So I guess pushing forward to the present day, you, um, you see an advert or you get told about the... Uh, 
chief executive role here at the Chartered Institute. Um, why did it, why, why apply? Um, I've been working as a management consultant in a wide breadth of areas, um, working for the NHS, uh, working for other membership bodies, uh, working for trade organisations, and in the last few years I've been running a, a social inclusion business, uh, in fact for my wife who is the lead person, uh, but I was at home doing the books and doing right. business development and things <laughs> like that. Um, I um, talked to a few headhunter friends of mine and they said you really ought to be leading a charity or a professional body and we, I went on holiday and I came back and somebody said hey there's a job at the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors and I immediately said well that's not for me is it? It's, <laughs> one, it, the, the name's too long, <laughs> secondly I've got no qualifications in that and they probably want a grumpy uh, academic to do it who knows a <laughs> hundred times more than than me, but I read it and I realised it was all about changing lives. Mm. And so I, I couldn't work out what the purpose of the institute was, to be honest, when I was yeah, applying. Yeah. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, and, and I presented this at the interview when I, I met the panel, and I said, I think your purpose is to integrate design to improve life, well-being and performance. And I think you do it through science, through engineering, through technology, through psychology. Yeah. And the panel were a little bit stunned, and I thought, I've said something wrong here, clearly. <laughs> uh, time to go. But actually, when they appointed me, they asked me to restate that yes. and adopted it as the vision, if you yeah. like, uh, for the Institute. I was going to say, that's always been, and um, we've sort of said this in previous podcasts as well, so people who've heard different episodes will, will recognise this. We can, we've spent an awful lot of time, and still do, talking about right, what is ergonomics and human factors, and you, three different people in the room, we can still have six different opinions. Um, so yes, having a, it's one of the things we've been missing, I think, is that nice, pithy almost, but e definition that you can put out there. Um, and then, because you've actually got a grip of potentially understanding what it means. But anyway, we, we digress. Um, so you're now, you're now in post, you've been in post for um, a few months, and, um, and I think quite clearly making, uh, making your mark on um, we've seen a, a really good interview in the Ergonomist magazine, um, and as well as you, you know, you've been been able to get, get yourself out into, out, out into publications as well, which is which is brilliant, spreading spreading the good word. But it's gone. It's a long five years ahead. So where do you? Um, what do you want to achieve in the uh, in in your tenure here? Yeah, um, I mean, I like to think of myself as a chief executive that's engaging, uh, inspirational, lead by example, and that's why I do what I do. I want people to almost do what I do, which is champion our discipline, our profession, how we want to uh, change the world. Um, working at Velocity has been a way that people have described me because right, they can't okay. keep up. But guess what? I think the previous CEO and the team that were here have done a marvellous job. It's taken the Institute from really a truly voluntary society to being organised Yep. And I've uh, been delighted to take over an organisation that's organised and therefore I'm able to move at velocity. Okay. And what am I moving at velocity with is to get the, um, the notion that the Institute is the preeminent voice to do with ergonomics and human factors. Okay. If government comes out with a consultation paper, if the NHS come out with something on patient safety, if the nuclear industry comes out with something uh, to do with uh, risk, 
I want them to actually think of Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors. We should be asking them, their uh, special interest group, or we know they've got a sector group that should be yeah. interested. I want people to recognize that there is a profession here that is changing lives for right. the better. And I don't think we've got that visibility yet. Uh, that is my end goal, is for people to know us a little bit more than, well, actually, a lot more yes. than what they know of us today. Yeah. I was saying to someone, uh, I was meeting a few of my CEO colleagues in uh, the Society of Occupational Medicine and the British Occupational Hygiene Society and the in International Institute of Risk and Safety Management. And I basically said to the colleagues of mine that in years to come, there will be a professional role on the board that encompasses what we do. Mm. You know, when electricity was first invented, there was a chief electricity officer. Yeah. Decades later, we had chief information officers, we've got chief marketing officers, we've got chief diversity and inclusion officers on boards. Yeah. Why don't we have someone to do with uh, human factors? Because our discipline has science, it has engineering, it has design, it has art in it as well, actually. Yeah. There is going to be a world where our discipline is going to be on that board table, and I want to find out what that discipline is and get it there. That's a really strong ambition, and I think that's if we can get even anywhere near that, then you'll have achieved a massive game-changing role. So I guess the, the hard bit about that is the how, isn't it? Um, now we've got the, the new strategy coming out. Now I guess it must have been quite difficult in many ways that the strategy had already been built up, but you, you've had an you've been able to influence that. Um, so how do you see the sort of? Um, we don't necessarily need to go into the detail, but how do you see that strategy rolling out? Yeah, there's the a there's a five year strategy. Um, it focuses around four key strategic themes. One is uh, about creating a world-class organization. And to do that, we have to build an infrastructure that can accommodate many more members and can influence the, the world a lot more. That's what a world-class organization does. Uh, there's a lot in its second theme about supporting members. I'm hugely, hugely a supporter of member engagement. Uh, I have open door access to any members uh, who write to me, I want to listen to them, I want to help them with their careers, I want to help them with their businesses, I want to help them if they're working in a university. Um, a good example of what we're doing in supporting members, we'll be launching some personal development programs, yeah. how yeah. to set up your own business, how to sell, how to present more effectively, how to use social media. These were things that people thought, well, somebody else does that. I yes. said, no, we should do it for our members, you know. Um, and of course, later, we'll be looking at how um, we can engage more members in creating white papers on topics that they are very knowledgeable about, but they'd never thought of writing one. Right. So I want more people to create thought leadership, and that's part of how we support those members. A third theme is around the future human, because a lot of what we do is not just for the now, it's yeah. for the future. So we want people to talk more about how our discipline impacts the future well-being of individuals, of communities, of societies, whether it's through the design of new public transport, the design of integrated robotics that work on at street level, uh, smart cities, I think yeah. they call it. Uh, and our last theme is about collaboration with allied bodies, uh, with trade organisations, 
A good example, I'm speaking with Liquid Gas UK, who have 100 corporate members who represent a large part of the energy industry in this country, right. actually, because liquid gas, gas is used at fun fairs, in catering businesses. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more prevalent and more widespread than people realise. There's a lot of safety issues, there's a lot of risk issues, there's a lot of human factors issues around the design uh, of how that uh, fuel is used. And they've just woken up and said, I think we need to understand human factors. <laughs> yes. You know, and so we're okay. influencing other trade bodies. Uh, that's one level, but the other level is to influence government and influence yeah. policy and influence educational establishments on the kind of uh, programming uh, training that we want to be available for uh, human factors people. That's really interesting, yes, because the one of the things that we've sort of been talking about recently is people, when they're going through school, when they're going through their um, um, you know, primary school, secondary school, you grow up, you want to be a scientist, you want to be an engineer, you want to be an astronaut. You want to, nobody ever says that they want to be an ergonomist. And in fact, most people you talk to don't realise that ergonomics exists until either it's put right front and square in front of them one way or another, um, either as part of their role and suddenly they're in charge of it, or um, they come across it at university, you know, either uh, as part of their first degree, maybe going to do a master's and that type of thing. Do we have ambitions to go and, and try and get into earlier education, do you think? I, I think that it's always good to influence young people at an early stage about what life could be like. Mm -hmm. uh, and we run a careers fair every year, and I thought it was fabulous, the one we ran in Birmingham uh, earlier this year, young people looking at what the opportunities are. It is uh, a challenge because most of the degree courses are at master's level. Yeah for ergonomics and human factors people. I almost come full circle to discussing what this future role will be between an ergonomics and human factors person, an engineer, etc. Yeah. After all, they never thought of a chief marketing officer. They never thought of a chief information officer until they realized it was a function yeah. deeply required by business and industry. Yes. I feel at some stage by promoting the contribution of human factors to business, to industry, to community, uh, people will turn around and say, actually, we need you at the board table to inform how we're actually engaging our customers, how we're looking at the design process, uh, how we are looking at our investment plans that might have an impact given the human factors elements uh, of it. It's a long way, it's a long journey before we can get to that new job. Yeah the integration of m many disciplines. But for the time being, I think going to schools, universities and colleges and talking about our discipline actually does uh, motivate young people to get into science, into engineering, who then decide to specialise in human factors yeah. or ergonomics. Uh, and in many ways, Barry, that's why we have uh, many members who have uh, multiple charterships. Uh, I think like yourself, actually, chartered engineer, chartered ergonomist. Uh, I've come across chartered psychologists who are now chartered ergonomists, which really does say that we are operating in a blended environment mm -hmm. where multiple sciences, multiple arts and disciplines are coming into play. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I guess some people actually quite nicely described us in a meeting the, uh, the other day that we were having, and there's the human factors and ergonomics role is actually the glue that holds many other bits together. Um, I'm not sure, sure that's entirely true, but I quite like the concept of it, the fact that we can just get in and get anywhere.
This podcast is supported by K-Sharp, the human science research and human factors consultancy. If you want to know how innovating in the relationship between humans and technology can add value to your business, product, or research, then visit www.ksharp.co.uk. So over the next five years, you've got some, you've obviously got your strategy, as, we, as, as we've said, but there must be some things you're looking forward to more than any others. Have you got any, um, if you're on little things that you think uh, you, you just can't wait to get underway? Yeah, I, I think there's several really nice projects and initiatives we've got on, on the go. Uh, there's three in particular right now. Um, <clears throat> we launched an energy learning pathway uh, in December, uh, working with the Institute of Energy. Uh, we set ourselves a target of, I think, about 50 people to join that. Uh, in the first couple of years and within weeks we've got a hundred. That basically means we'll end up with a hundred technical members. And the beauty of it and the attraction of it to industry is because it has three levels. Level one being an entry for pretty much anybody that just wants to have the basics. Level two to the next level of specialism and then technical membership for level three. We are and I am really looking forward to uh, creating a healthcare learning pathway and Uh, user experience learning pathway. With the healthcare learning pathway, we're working with professionals across the NHS, with uh, Health Education England, NHS uh, Education Scotland. Uh, In terms of UX, we are actually working with UX professionals at universities who actually blend computer science with three-dimensional design. Uh, And that's just going to be a treat. To actually see the institute grow up and grab another growing area, actually, of human factors, but the one that concerns the human more, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, At the end of this year, we're going to launch a Human Factors Roadshow, which will be focused on uh, business leaders to promote the role of human factors, the beginning of my journey of bashing down boardroom doors (laughs) to let uh, business understand that you've got people or you might need people to make a difference to your business. Um, And, you know... Last but not least is in our conferencing as we evolve, I hope to turn our national conference into an international conference. We're heavily dominated with academic submissions at the moment, but what I think people want to see, and especially practitioners and industry, is an industry engagement to collaborate with industry. Um, So next year we've already talking to NASA, to Rolls-Royce, Jaguar Land Rover to get some big wigs from there Brilliant. to come and tell us about how their industry is moving and how and what role human factors professionals can play. That's absolutely fantastic. And it really paints quite, I think, quite an exciting uh, future. Now, I know we've got a, um, a council meeting coming up in a few minutes, so we will draw things to a close. But, Norseman, I just wanted to say thank you very much for, for taking the time to come and talk to us. And hopefully uh, the members who listen to the podcast will understand a bit more about the man behind the title. And I would just like to reiterate what you said about um, your openness. I've certainly found that me being able to just contact you has been absolutely brilliant. And if you don't mind, I will put your contact details in with the podcast in the the description notes. So if you scroll down with the um, episode notes, you should, as long as I've got my admin sorted out, find all the contact details there. But for now, Norseman, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Barry. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. 
See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.